On the Empire Podcast, this week, we rev our engines with James Mangold to talk about Le Mans 66. Everyone's reaction to the movie is, oh, I know what this is. Just a two-hour car ad, where then we know exactly how it's going to end. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I couldn't give less of a shit about the cars, and it doesn't end like you think it does. Yeah. And chat Santa with Paul Feig to mark the release of his new movie, Last Christmas. I loved the script so much, and then I was like, oh, and the added bonus is, we think we can go live in London. Yeah. <laughs> All this and the usual movie news, reviews, and nonsense on the only movie podcast that has received a Sonic the Hedgehog-style makeover and now looks 50% less horrifying. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and I'm once again stepping into the enormous clown shoes of Chris Hewitt, who was so unaccustomed to taking leave, which he did last week, that it actually made him ill. So I'm afraid he is now home with the Lurgy, and we wish him all the best for a speedy recovery. And in the meantime, the podcast is mine! All mine! <laughs> um, sorry, I'm here. Hello. Hi. Um, and I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our West Wing guru, a man who insists every single morning that young Ben bring him the finest muffins and bagels in all the land and calls every single vessel from which he drinks the cup of glory. It's James Dyer. I am, in fact, drinking from the cup of glory. Uh, <laughs> yes. Hello. I'm, it's funny, you? like, my... Uh, my my introductions have never ever evolved from the West Wing. No, that's that's essentially. <laughs> do, you, do you want them to? I mean, no. Although I will say, Helen, it's the keg of glory more than the cup of glory. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm drinking from the cup of glory, but I like to think Josh Lyman will always be drinking from the keg of glory. Well, he is a lot better than you, so that yeah. tracks. It's his inner mm. frat boy. <laughs> We also have with us, you may have heard him in the background, Amon Warman, who's such an enormous fan of The Lion King that his day doesn't start until he's been to London Zoo, hoist a baby animal whatever into the air on top of a rock and waited until all the other animals bow. Did you know that? So it takes him hours sometimes. <laughs> this is true. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> See, he doesn't even deny it. It must be true. <laughs> Zookeepers, if you've been wondering what's going on, it's definitely that. <laughs> So, yeah, so we're here at least. We don't have the Lurgy. Are we Lurgy free? I'm Lurgy free. I am also Lurgy free. Oh, this is good. Hurrah. (laughs) Okay. Well done us for clean living and washing our hands lots. Um, Shall we have a question? Sure. Let's do it, Helen. Okay, so this comes from Carl Jackson, who's on Twitter at at Carl from Wolves. And he asks, what other Christmas songs would you like to see turned into a film? So obviously this week sees the release of Last Christmas, which does feature Last Christmas by Wham and other music by George Michael and Wham. So what other Christmas songs do we want to see? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Tale New York <laughs> is already a film. Right. Isn't is it? it that story, though? Oh, God, no. No. What no. you mean, is it? Is it a bit, you know, homophobic and what? I don't believe it is. No, I think the film <laughs> is, is, is fine. I mean, it's not fine. It's terrible, but it's not homophobic that I'm aware of. Okay. Because the song's been cancelled. The film has not been cancelled. Well, the the film is just word, frowned upon. That word in the song has been cancelled. I yeah. feel like the song has not been cancelled. It doesn't get played, though, anymore. Like, it doesn't oh. get playlisted because it was a bit, there was a big hoo-ha last year, wasn't there? So, well, I mean, that's... Yeah. Cancelled. Um, what uh, would I use? Okay, let me, let me bring up a list okay, of Christmas songs. you work on that. I know <laughs> Amon has an answer already, so I want to oh, hear what you okay. have to say. I have two potential... Oh, what? <laughs> Let's hear potential, it. Potential. So, one of them, Santa Baby... Earth the oh, Kit. Oh yes. As a sequel to the Boss Baby. No, I'm thinking this. I'm thinking this actually actually is a sequel to the Christmas Chronicles, because what I'm imagining will happen is that at some point early on in the film, Santa Kurt Russell will be yep. turned into a baby, which means that wait uh, what? 
Kurt Russell's turned it because like Santa baby and someone's trying to seduce sexy Santa Kurt Russell into giving them <laughs> presents. I was super with you on, but super sexy Santa Kurt Russell turns into a baby. Stay with me. It gets mm. better. It gets better. Mm. So super sexy Santa Kurt Thank Russell you. turns into yes. a baby, and because of that, Goldie Horn has Mrs. to Santa. Mrs. Santa mm-hmm. has to step in to save Christmas. Oh. Really, it was just engineering to get because who doesn't want to see that Goldie Horn as Santa? I Come do want to see Goldie Horn as Santa. But I, I feel like we are missing the, the whole potential of the song because apart <laughs> from the name, I feel like it's not a ba- very baby-centric song. Did you know, by the way, that that song has a sequel? What? There is a sequel called This Year's Santa, Santa Teenager. Baby. No, <laughs> you're still acting like the song is about babies, guys. You need to get past the idea that the song is connected to babies. There's a sequel called This Year's Santa Baby, also by Eartha Kitt. And it basically, genuinely, you can look it up, is uh, the story of how all the gifts she got the previous year turned out to be rubbish and she needs new replacements. Right. The world's most entitled Christmas song. No, but I mean, Santa Baby is a song where she's basically trying to seduce Santa into giving her an enormous amount of very rich presents. That is genuinely genuinely a a film that I think somebody should make and I would like to see it if they have. Because I think that could be a lot like it could end up being a porn film, Helen. No, I don't think it would have to. I think you just need a sort of you need a kind of Marilyn Monroe fifties kind of vibe. If you did in a sort of, I've been a good girl this year. I just nobody needs that image. We need a sort of. Then you have a weird bad Santa crossover where Lorelai Gilmore is going fuck me Santa, fuck me Santa, and I just don't need that in my brain. I just feel like there's a way to do this. I feel like it's a down with love kind of Marilyn Monroe, Gentleman Fred Blondes kind of thing that could sort of work. I'm not saying I've ironed out all the kinks yet. Wow, no, no, pun, no pun intended. intended. <laughs> but I think it could work. Okay. okay. So my second one, I'm still working out the particulars of, but once I sort of settle on this title, I'll be home for Christmas, Bing Crosby. Okay. So stay with me here. Yep. But I'm thinking this opens up on a former cop in prison, wrongfully convicted. Whoa. He's talking. Stay Ooh, with me. Oh, it's a gritty stay with me. Christmas movie. He's one month away from getting out of jail. Oh. He's talking to his family in one of those you know, phone window things. He's yep. promising that he's... He'll be home for Christmas. He's going to be home for Christmas. Oh. He's talking to his wife. He's talking to his daughter, his 10-year-old daughter. Oh. He's going to be home for Christmas. One month later, no. the day he gets out is Christmas Eve. Oh, it's the last that, minute. And that is how See, the movie begins. You're thinking too low. I think it should be a sequel to The Wages of Fear. And it's <laughs> I'll be home for Christmas or bits of me will be smeared across the landscape. Like it's that's that's the level you should be pitching this at. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's full of the Christmas spirit there, James. Well, let me think. What other, what is other? I just want to say if anybody's listening to this, any Hollywood producers, yeah. I demand 20%. 20%. <laughs> The little, the little drummer boy, I'm thinking a Love Actually spin-off starring uh, Thomas Brody Sangster's character. Right, and it's him. okay. Also, yep. you have to, you'd have to CG youth him. Absolutely, but, de-age you know, him. That, yeah, yeah sure. we can de-age him. That's no problem. I think that could work. Santa Claus is coming to town. Well, that's almost certainly porn. Oh, come all you faithful. Probably so is that. Uh, Mary's boy child, a kind of cougar drama no, about a woman called Mary. Absolutely who, not. No, okay, moving on from that. Jingle Bell Rock. It's The Rock... Yes. Singing jingle bells. Oh my yeah. god! I'm, yeah, where I do I sign? I couldn't be more sold. But <laughs> I have, I have my own suggestion. One of my favorite Christmas songs, and I'm not kidding, is a song called Meli Kalikimaka, which is a Hawaiian Christmas song. Okay, um, which was recorded in the 50s. It is a standard. If you hear it, if you look it up, you will find it. It's kind of spelled like it sounds, Meli Kalikimaka, and it is great. I don't have a plot to go with this, but I think it's important that I go to Hawaii for Christmas to research it. So Hollywood producers, if you're listening, if you're not sure by giving Amon 20% of your next film, give me, I don't even need 20%. I just need the budget to go 
to Hawaii for Christmas and research my undoubtedly hit movie. I'm saying if we don't want to be constrained by songs and we're just pitching Christmas movies to Hollywood, I'm just saying Christmas has fallen. (laughs) Jerry Butler, it writes itself. (laughs) (laughs) Who can we get to record the theme tune? Like Adele singing Christmas has fallen? Because then it would kind of work, right? I think she'd be up for it. I mean, Celine Dion did a Deadpool song, so... Which is great, by the way. It's Ashes. a great song, yeah. It's, it's better than most Bond songs, honestly. It's good. Then. <laughs> <laughs> this is... I feel like we're onto something here. I, th- I feel like some of these could be actual films. They probably are already. Well, my one's almost certainly in development, so... <laughs> <laughs> Weren't they making, like, three more Oh, yeah. Many, films? three other things, at least, are falling, and one of them has to be Christmas. <laughs> and that's a terrifying concept. I mean, London's fallen. Angels have already fallen. That sounds like a Christmas movie. It does kind of sound uh, like a Christmas so, movie. It's, you know, it's a bit... Um, sort of It's a Wonderful Life, isn't it? A little Spoiler. bit, yeah. It's yeah. a Wonderful Life too. Angel Has Fallen. <laughs> <laughs> Colon, Dawn of Justice. Dawn of Justice. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> frantically ringing a bell trying to get all the angels back up. That's an It's a Wonderful Life But also, life joke. we don't need more Christmas movies because we what? already have the perfect Christmas movie, which is, of course, Love Actually. And really, I feel that at that point we can just retire. I thought you were going to say Die Hard there You didn't say Die Hard also. (laughs) Well, that was mainly for your own personal benefit because I didn't want you to reach across the table and murder me. Oh, my God. As again, I have stated before, but I will say it again because it needs saying every year. I don't mind if you think that Die Hard is you a Christmas movie. just hate the conversation. I just don't think it's clever or original to point it out, okay? So just FYI. Yeah. And Love Actually is certainly a film that happens at Christmas that I mostly like. I think most people like bits of it. Everybody likes the Emma Thompson bit, don't they? So. And and the Bill Nighy bits. And the Bill Nighy bits. Okay, yeah. Yeah, those are pretty, yeah, uncontroversial. The rest is a little bit more. I love every minute of it, Actually. with the sole exception of the Chris Marshall. Weird. I mean, it's not even a plot line, is it? It's just a tiny bit at the end. But that's the only part of it that annoys me. I can even deal with the uh, Keira Knightley, Andrew Lincoln thing, creepy as it is. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Yeah. She could and did do better in that film. See, my whole thing about that is not so much that he's a little bit Me Too-ish, but it's also that his friend entrusted him with photography at his wedding and he fucked it up. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? If you haven't seen Love Actually, we've just given you a whole load of spoilers, but it's been a few years. I feel like you should have seen it by now. Okay, so Hollywood, call us. We're waiting for your calls and ready and willing to make the greatest, I think, Christmas movies that have ever been made. In the meantime, while we wait for the phones to start ringing, I think it's time for an interview. And we have two great directors this week but since we've just talked about Christmas it seems only proper that we start with Paul Feig he's the comedy genius behind Bridesmaids behind Freaks and Geeks Ghostbusters Spy I want a sequel already yeah. or spin-off Jason Statham's character I need more Spy is literally the best film he's ever done no. Spy is is really a great film no. but this week he brings us Last Christmas which stars Amelia Clark, uh, yes her from Game of Thrones as a Christmas shop elf whose life is in and I think it's fair to say a complete toilet, like mm. utter disarray, until, that is, she meets a very handsome man who's played by Henry Golding. And I went along to talk to Paul Feig and find out more about the film. Now, full disclosure, I forgot to press record until halfway through our first question, so there aren't any friendly greetings at the beginning of this. There were. They just got slightly... Does it just begin with out. you apologising? Like no. my Nicole Kidman interview from last year. I just I just quietly, you know, we just did it just before the first question, but I didn't actually... Oh, you didn't tell him that you'd fucked it up? No. Oh, see, I owned it completely. I went, Nicole, <laughs> I've got to be honest with you. I'm not recording this. Can we start again? <laughs> Got to be honest with you. I'm an idiot. Yes. Um, no. I so, it up. 
So anyway, apologies for that. But trust me, he was a very pleasant man. There were pleasantries. I just didn't record them. And here is the first question. Enjoy. So Emma Thompson came to you with this film. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. She just dropped into my inbox about a year and a half ago because we were supposed to I was supposed to direct the movie Late Night with her of course yeah Yeah, and um, so we got together a few times and kind of to talk about the character and just really hit it off Mm. major major league then when that didn't work out because of scheduling we just stayed in contact and going like what are we going to do we we love each other so much we have to do something together (laughs) and then yeah the script shows up that I didn't know if she had just written it or whatever. And then, you know, then I find out that, uh, you know, it had been eight years in the making. Yeah. I mean, the minute I read it, I was like, I'm in. Like, where do I go? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if you can work with Emma Thompson, work with Emma Thompson, right? Yeah. Oh, I my mean... gosh. Dame Emma Thompson. You kidding me? Yeah. And she wasn't even <laughs> supposed to be in the movie. I mean, she, you know, uh-huh. was, you know, producing it and, 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 and had written it. And, you know, and I always have the writers, my movies on the set with me all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you, you know, I, you'll be with me the whole time. And she wanted to be. And then... I was suddenly going like, well, how am I going to explain to people that I had Emma Thompson on the set the entire time and she's not in the movie? You know, so I was like, Emma, you got to play the mom. And she's like, well, I, I thought about it, but I don't know if it's a good idea. And I was like, I'm telling you, you will be great and I'm not going to not let you be in the movie. And, you know, she's spectacular in it. What is it about Emma Thompson kind of glamming herself down for Christmas movies? Like, Because I feel like Love Actually as well, that's a lot less glamorous than she actually is. You know? Well, you know, I mean, that's what I love about one of the many things I love about Emma is there's no vanity that would hold her back from doing a great performance and being all about the character. And she's playing characters in these movies that happen to happen to just that is their thing. They're real life people who are having problems and sort of, you know, that's the point they are in their life. And I think it's so great. But, you know, but then you see like late night and she's all glammed up yeah. and gorgeous. So it's the mark of a great actress to just be able to lose themselves in the character so much that they don't really care how they present mm-hmm. themselves. And I think that's wonderful. Oh, absolutely. And she does look incredible in, in late night. My yeah. God, those suits. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Everything. Um, but, so, so tell me about the rest of the cast. Amelia, I think you'd met a while back. Is that right? Or yeah, like four years ago, I'd had a had a meeting wow. with her just because she was in town when I was in LA, and I was a big fan from Game of Thrones, and was kind of curious what she was all about, you know? Because you know, I expected her to come in very serious and stoic, like Khaleesi, weirdly, <laughs> like she's not an actress, and she was this wonderful, bubbly funny person. I just couldn't get over how funny she was. Yeah, you don't get that from Game of Thrones really at all. No, I mean, she's, you know, she's great in it, but Mm. she has to play so contained and stoic. And then, and once I find out that somebody's funny, I become obsessed with wanting the world to know that they're funny. (laughs) And so, you know, I left that meeting going like, okay, I've got to get her in a comedy. And I was writing something at the time that I was trying to write her into, but I didn't, wasn't happy with the script itself. So, you know, a couple of years later, three years later, when I read the script, it's like, this is the one, because she can be a great actress and have all these great emotional scenes but it should also be yeah. funny do physical comedy and was it always London set this one it yeah. had to be London yeah, yeah yeah which is one of the other things that drew me to it because yeah. you know I've been wanting to shoot a movie here forever and my wife and I have been wanting to live here forever and it's funny because I was just about to sign on a movie that would shoot all in LA and I remember my wife going like, well, she goes, that's fun for you. But for me, it just means I just my life just continues on as normal, you know, because we do have fun. It's fun to make movies on location, even yeah. though, you know, the stress of making a movie is, is always wacky. But um, but it's just nice being somewhere, you know, when somebody else is paying for it. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I so I read this, I loved the script so much. And then I was like, oh, and the added bonus is we I think we can go live in London. Yeah. But uh, tell me about Henry as well, because I think you had to kind of wait for crazy 
crazy rich Asians to come out. So yeah. Were, were you worried that, about that being a success or were you just like, that's going to be big? No, I knew because my wife had seen it. We were friendly with John Chu because, right. you know, when I did Simple Favor, I called John, you know, because I wanted to hire Henry just because I liked him. I saw his online reel of when he was a, you know, a mm-hmm. travel show host and thought he was so great and called John like, is he real? And he's like, oh, yeah, he's great. So because of that, we became friends with John. And my wife has always been obsessed with the Crazy Rich Asians books. Yeah, they're great books. Yeah, they're so great. And so he let her come to an early screening. And she came back for that going like, this movie's going to be huge. She was just like <laughs> on fire about this thing. So I was like, oh, well, you know, because when I read the script, I was like, this is perfect for Henry. But nobody knows who he is yet. The, like mm-hmm. the studio didn't know who he was. You know, and I would bring him up, kind of like, "Hey, he's going to be in this," and they're like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, but let's try to get you know so and so and this other famous person." Like, "Yeah, okay," so it kind of bided my time until that opening weekend, and then fortunately went through the roof. And I was like, "Hey, remember that guy Henry I talked about?" They're like, oh, "We love him." Cast him. I was like, "Okay, good. So it worked out." We've always been huge fans of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My goodness, well, how can you think we didn't like him? <laughs> There's also, and I'm, I'm not giving any spoilers away here, but there is also a scene in the movie where he does a little Sean Connery James Bond yes. impression. Now. Have you included that specifically so you will look like a genius one day when he is cast as Bond? I mean, all I can say is Henry Golding should be James Bond. It's uh, Nothing has been more clear in my head than when you see him, especially when he's in a tuxedo or whatever. It's, yep. it's yeah. No, that was just, it was a joke that was in, in the script uh, already and it just felt right. And, uh, but then, you know, we thought it'd be funny to have him try to do Sean Connery. And it's, you know, and then Greg Wise was on the set kind of coaching him how to do the accent. There's a very funny outtake that is on the DVD and, and Blu-ray the, of him trying to do a longer version of the line and just really falling <laughs> apart. And it's very, very funny. But we kept it in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's cute. He just about, it gives you an impression of Connery-ness. Exactly. Right? There you go. It's right. Yeah. Henry's, Connery via Henry. <laughs> yeah. And there is a, there is a, a tiny shot of Greg Greg Wise in the in the crowd. Yeah, scene the he's end, sitting next to Andrew Ridgely yeah. in the in the last scene. Oh, I didn't yeah. spot. It was too quick for me to notice. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Ah, have to look out for that <laughs> one next yes. time. Um, and yeah, did you have any problems with that ice skating scene though? Because uh, you know, can everyone ice skate? Well, I mean, Amelia wasn't a great ice skater, but that was nice because Perfect. it was all about her not being able to skate. Yeah, you know, but you know, you never want to get somebody out on the ice and have them kill themselves either. So That's, that would be a downer. Yeah, yeah. but exactly. But she's you know she's so good at everything that she you know. She used it to her advantage. And Henry is an amazing ice skater, which is so funny because I actually thought, oh, Amelia will be fine. I don't know if Henry can skate, mm. you know, having grown up in Singapore. But then you go like, oh, well, he, he said, no, we do a lot of skating there. And then he lived, you know, he's obviously grew up in, in London, too. Mm. So he was just used to used to skating and I was just so surprised that he was kind of so good at it because I'm a lousy ice skater but I actually reconnected with it and I was out on the ice with them the entire time oh wow yeah because you know we're doing so much stuff going around them with the cameras that I, I had to have my monitors, and so I was like skating around behind the camera, trying not to kill myself. Oh my but it's fun to be out there with them, and you know. Also, we had Ali Pally all to ourselves. Oh wow! Which was magical. I mean, that's the greatest feeling in the world when you get something like that, and just like, hey, we're here. I, I would just kept putting on my skates and going out there and skating around and inventing reasons why I had to be on the ice. I've got to ask now: Do you have to have like? 
are there are there cameramen who have on their CV that they can ice skate? Is this a thing that, that some um, people have? I don't know if they list it as one of their skills, <laughs> but it's something you go like, oh, so-and-so can skate. What happens, the, them we pretty pretty much put on a sled right. and then have our grip department with these spikes on their, their shoes going around. But then my DP, John Schwartzman, he could ice skate too. He was like a hockey player. Oh, wow. So he and I are out there like skating around and, you know, because <laughs> he's always, John always is there with like a bounce board kind of right off camera, kind of sending nice warm light and reflections up into the actor and actress's mm-hmm. faces. So it's good. So he was, you know, it was, it's very funny. There's footage, I, I think, on the, on the DVD of us kind of all skating around <laughs> while they're doing this lovely love scene and we're all trying to not kill ourselves. This whole group of people around the edge oh, of the it's ice. Really, just, it's yeah. literally like kind of a joke. <laughs> and it also explains, of course, why everyone looks so sort of dreamily perfect yeah. in every scene. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, John Schwartzman's such a genius uh, cinematographer because a lot of these outdoor scenes in London, he wasn't able to do much lighting on. Mm. Because when you shoot like on Regent Street or any of these populated areas, the rule is you have to be able to clear everything you have off the street in like a few minutes in case there's an emergency. You know, it makes perfect sense. So you can't have all these big condors and all these, you know, lights all over the place. So John at first was like, I, we have to, I said, hey, I have to go out with my light meter and see if we can even do this movie yeah. because we'd had to shoot a lot of available lighting. But he came back so excited because he was out on Regent Street, you know, with just the, those Christmas lights up. He said, like, I think we can pull this off. I can bring in a few battery operated lights and just kind of augment with that. But I think that's why it looks so pretty because yeah. that natural light, all the colors come out then. You know, if you kind of overlight it, I feel like everything kind of gets kind of homogenized weirdly and this gave it so much depth and color and 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 warmth i just i just love it i mean that scene when they're in the christmas shop oh my god decorating the trees and they're having that conversation that entire scene is lit just by those the lights on the trees oh wow so it gives it that almost kind of kubrickian sort of glow and uh, barry linden via fairy yeah (laughs) no i mean you know these cameras we shot them these 8k panavision cameras and they're just amazing i mean they're so they're so light sensitive but also so beautiful and we have one scene there's one scene when they're talking in the bedroom and and the only take I had that I really liked of this one exchange they have was in a big wide shot. And I was like, I want to be in close on them. So we're like, well, it's 8K. Can we? And so we blew this frame up so big, like to turn this wide shot into this tight two shot. And you cannot tell. Oh, it's wow. amazing. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big fan of 8K now. Yeah. I do want to ask about that scene because you're one of the few directors who has come to London and shot a film here and not had people living in palaces they can't afford, <laughs> um, which was impressive. That That is a sort of Brixton, I think. Oh, no, that was a that was a Brick Lane, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was a Brick Lane. Yeah, which yeah. which actually Henry used to live on in oh, real life. Good. Yeah. He's lived on Tom Street. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I hate that whole thing of like everybody lives in beyond their means and but they're they're down on their luck with this enormous place (laughs) no i really it was important to us to make sure that we kind of made this real you know because it is it's a story about like real people and and also about how everybody's you know the melting pot that london is Mm -hmm. and all the things that people are going through and how you live and where you live and what happens to you in life. It's all part of that and part of the authenticity of who you are. And so I, I don't, I don't like to have any false beats, even though it's a movie that is, you know, it has almost a fairy tale ish element to yep. it. 
I just don't want the trappings to be fake. You know, I think the the interactions can be kind of heightened or can be a little more dreamy or a little more I don't know, you know, movieish than, than that. But I I want the trappings to be real, yeah. at least for a movie like this. Absolutely, and you do have the the fairy tale side of things as well. I mean, and I do want to ask as well about the the Christmas shop run by yeah. Michelle Yeoh's Santa. Mm-hmm. Um, I want every single thing she wears in this yeah. film for a start. But I mean, Michelle Yeoh has not been cast in a lot of comedies in her career I feel no. like so why not I mean <laughs> well that's the thing but again this uh, for me it all comes from that's why I always just like to meet people you mm-hmm. know like I don't necessarily like auditioning people and, and you know big stars you don't audition them anyway sure. but that's why I always just like anytime I can like have a meeting with somebody and not even a meeting like a dinner or drinks or something then you really I see who they are and then I go like oh I want that person to be on the screen I want to show the world I want them to have their misconceptions that I had blown away that the way same way that I did because I'm a huge Michelle Yeoh fan I mean I, I love you know I'm just, just a Hong Kong movie nut and, and all the martial arts and stuff so we've watched her for years and years and years and of course I had a big crush on her on top of Obviously. that yeah she's yeah. so gorgeous but then Henry when we were shooting um, Simple Favor one night he's like hey you know Michelle's in town I'm gonna have dinner with her you wanna come I was like does Michelle Yeoh exist? You know, because it is like, there's certain people who just go like, well, they're not real, no, you know? Definitely not. No. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to, I can have dinner with Michelle Yeoh. And I was really nervous too, because it's like, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, she's going to you know, punch me or something. I don't know. And um, I show up and here's, she's the most wonderful, warm person I think I've ever met. I couldn't get over it. And like, the minute we sat down together, I think we were like best friends in 30 seconds. It was like, oh, wow. cra- we just like connect with somebody. And we had so much fun, and then and we just became obsessed with like, we got to work together. We have to do something together. But I would kept going like, I want to, I want you to be funny though. I'm going to make you funny. She's like, I'm not funny. So that's all she'll say like, I'm not funny. I'm not funny. It's like <laughs> I hate to tell you, you are. And so when I put her in the the movie, like you know, even during it, she's like, I'm not funny. It's like Michelle, stop saying that because look, <laughs> you're getting laughs in this audience. So yeah, it was you know again when I see that side of somebody and nobody else sees it, then I mm-hmm. want to put it on screen. And I actually very much appreciate her commitment to ridiculous Christmas decorations yeah. because I am the person with the Christmas robot on the tree kind there of you thing. Go. You know, it's... Well, she, the funny thing about Michelle is she loves Christmas. She's obsessed oh, with really? Christmas just the same way that Santa is. Yeah. So, and, and honestly, when she, you know, she was worried when I, you know, when she read the part that we were going to kind of be making fun of it and also kind of having her be somebody who has like a, because we always, does, the store is always described as having so much like crap and you know just like like in bad taste kind of stuff and she was really worried because she was like I love Christmas and I also don't want to be portrayed as somebody who's like ripping off people yep. and he's like no no I, I totally get that but I don't want that either we're gonna have weird stuff and we're gonna have beautiful stuff in there and it's because those stores are that yeah, way they are. yeah and you just find out you know when you do something like this and you're doing set dressing or seeing the set dressing there's so much there's nothing that hasn't been made into a Christmas ornament. There's yeah. no noun in the English language that is not a Christmas ornament. 100%. Like, I sometimes buy things just because I've never seen them before, yeah, totally. but then I'll see 10 of them the next year because suddenly everybody's making, like, McDonald's fries Christmas oh, yeah. so, ornaments. Oh, we, every, every food item is, every a, food. is an ornament. Uh, crocodiles with pom-poms are ornaments. I mean, sure. I don't have a crocodile with a pom-pom. Uh, I've got the one. I stole the one from oh, the movie, so that's mine. That's going to be my next thing I need to get, definitely. Um, and what are you working on next i heard rumors about a monster movie is that, is that yeah funny? yeah i've already written my first draft of it and i'm really excited about it yeah it's for universal where my deal is you know so they've got this old the, you know the classic monster catalog and uh yeah so i wrote this thing that i'm very excited about kind of 
based on I'm, there's a couple of side characters from some of the movies that I'm bringing into the actual thing, but then creating characters around them or out of out of them, right? <laughs> if if you will. And um, so I, I'm, I'm not talking about who who they are yet, but it's, it's I'm very excited about it because I'm such a fan of like James Whale, yeah, you yeah. know those older like the Todd Browning movies, which they just had. They were scary, but they had a good sense of humor about themselves. Mm-hmm. But they were not parodies, you know. So this isn't Young Frankenstein, which is brilliant. This is more. You know, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein to me is just the touchstone. It's just got, it's such a weird, great movie that has like comedy beats in it and weird stuff and these extreme characters, but then it's scary. That's what I want to do. I want to bring that back. That'd be amazing. And are you talking sort of period set or kind of modern day? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, there's a whole thing going on okay. with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who also has a Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster Christmas ornaments. Oh, nice. I approve mildly. That Excellent. sounds amazing. I'm very that sounds thrilled. really good. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, well, listen, best of luck with the film. Can't, can't wait to see it again, quite frankly, which I'm definitely going to do because oh. it's a Christmas movie and that's the whole point of them, right? You watch exactly. them over and over again. Thank you, Helen. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, um, which ones do you watch? Which ones do you go to? Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. Obviously. is my yeah. I have to it can't be Christmas if no. I don't watch that uh, Love Actually is Miracle on 34th Street yeah. and Die Hard of course the classics yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much alright time for some movie news so what has been happening this week there can only be one place to start this week and it is McClunky Okay, so I haven't got Disney Plus I haven't watched this yet but I'm aware <laughs> that there are New 4K yay, yes. versions of the Star Wars films yes. on Disney+. Plus. All of these things are true. And Greedo says McClunky? He did. So Disney+, Plus finally, its long-awaited debut happened, although not in the UK, and indeed a handful of other territories, which we won't be getting them until next year. But in the US and elsewhere, mm-hmm. Disney+, Plus launched. The Mandalorian arrived to mixed reviews, and the original Star Wars films, specifically episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and Rogue One, Ooh. all appeared mm-hmm. in 4K, HDR, Dolby Atmos, which a lot Four. of those had never been released on. So Last Jedi and Solo have been released on UHD, but the others haven't. So that's a really big deal. Everyone was very excited. Mm-hmm. However... There's always a however <laughs> However... You. It turns out that George Lucas, bless his little tinkering socks, has still been fucking about with Star Wars. And he tinkered with it a little bit more before he sold Lucasfilm to Disney. Mm-hmm. So this was done quite a few years ago. It's done like 2014. And, oh, 20, 2012 even. Yeah. It could have been. It would have been 2012. So he sort of did it in like, 2012, something like that, he's tweaked the Greedo scene again, and it's been sitting there waiting to be seen (laughs) for those years. It has finally dropped, and we've now seen, and he has simply changed it one more time. So to give you some some clarity on this, obviously, obviously, Greedo shot first. No. (laughs) Han shot first. Killed Greedo, and any court in the world would acquit him on account of preemptive self-defense. That's absolutely fine. He was about to be shot. He was about to be shot, and he shot first. Helen? As your lawyer. Go away. Anyway, <laughs> Han shot Greedo. It's all good. We're all happy with it. No one is blaming Han. George Lucas, however, <laughs> did. So when he did the 1997 special editions, yep. he tweaked it so oh. that Greedo shot first. Outrageous. Then when the DVD came out in, I think, 2004, he changed it again so that Greedo still shoots first, but they're closer together. Mm-hmm. And then when the Blu-ray came out, they shoot at basically the same time and Han Solo does a little weird CG dodge thing, which looks fucking oh, ridiculous. No. <laughs> now, in the 4K version... They shoot at basically the same time. Han still dodges. 
The scene is a little shorter, like a few frames are missing of Greedo falling. But now, before he pulls the trigger, Greedo, for reasons known only to himself, looks at Han and goes, McClunky. And that is his final word. So is this... Like, somebody said this is something in Huttese. Is that well, right? Well, I would argue that Greedo probably speaks Rodian and not Huttese, oh but that's God. a whole other thing. <laughs> what but, a mistake of but, the maker. I mean, perhaps I'm wrong, but I just assume he's a Rodian. Anyway, yes, apparently Sebulba says McClunky, and apparently it means something like you're about to meet your end or something. I don't know if that's true. I haven't bothered to look into it. But I can say that Greedo now goes McClunky. And that was the word that launched a million memes this week. Yes. McClunky so is now in every memes. film. It is now in everything. <laughs> you can't you can't swing a cat on the internet without hitting a McClunky. It was mm. one of those weird things. Like, I get to the Twitter notifications popping up on my phone, and I see McClunky. Oh. I'm like, what is going on? I just ignore it. Then one after one, more McClunky. What is this McClunky? I need to find out what this is. And then I was saying, yeah. <laughs> this is why. This yeah. is why. Not kidding. Turn off notifications. They'll yeah. only drive you mad. But the best part of this, I like to think, is our very own Ben Travis, uh-huh. never one to let a McClunky lie, called up Paul Blake, the actor who played Greedo, and got his take on McClunky Gate. <laughs> oh my goodness! And it turns out, and this is absolutely true, he found out about it because Bib Fortuna texted him and said McClunky, and he was like, "Bib, what are you doing? What the fuck does that mean?" And Bib was like. Check on the internet. Does he call him Bib? Probably not. (laughs) But Bib Fortuna texted Greedo to tell him about McClunky. And for that alone, and indeed all the other many things he has to say about this, go to empireonline.com and read Ben's interview with Paul Blake about McClunky. It is glorious. Amazing. But yeah, this meme has made me laugh a lot. I'm, I'm actually wondering whether there are other small tweaks to be found in the films as well because people have noticed that and I understand why because that seems to mess around with more than any other that's the Mm. first place you'd look but I imagine there might be other subtle changes because I remember when Star Wars when the first uh, three films came out on Blu-ray we reviewed them but we mainly reviewed the extras because we didn't watch all the films because we thought we've seen these films a million times and therefore we missed no which is obviously that horrific insert that Lucas drops in at the end of Return of the Jedi when Vader picks up the Emperor and throws him down the shaft. He now uses the same noo that you hear in Revenge of the Sith. Oh, boy. And that, again, is horrific. George, 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 (laughs) we need to talk. Please stop. Please. but, But actually, what you want is from not to stop. You want 4K versions, let's be honest, of the original cuts. You do, and you've got to think that now part. that Disney own Fox and they could legally do this, it, it, they're clearly going to, because it's surely a license to print money. Got a license to print. <laughs> well, exactly. No, I mean, you can, like, people have on the internet have acquired the 35 mil prints and mm. have scanned them in. I think there are a couple of different people who have done really painstaking restorations of the of the original prints and released those, shall we say, illicitly in 4K. So they are available. But other than that, the only official way to get the unedited ones is via a DVD release, which was a limited DVD run that ran, I want to say 2006, but they came bundled with the original versions. Okay. But in classic George Lucas style, it was a big fuck you to fans because he deliberately included them. They're not in 5.1. They're in like stereo or surround and they're not cleaned up at all. They're letterbox. I mean, they're really grainy. And it was his way of saying, hey, you want the originals? This is what they look like. Isn't there a Laserdisc somewhere? There is a Laserdisc version as well. But then, I mean, who owns a Laserdisc player? (laughs) I'm betting they'll do that when The Rise of Skywalker comes out on Blu-ray and they have the whole set. I wonder, or I wonder whether they'll want to release the 4K special editions as they are, and milk that. And then once people have bought those, maybe they'll think, oh, there's one thing left to do. Let's do this. <laughs> Who knows? Mm. You know, but then do people even buy physical media to an extent that it would be worth their while 
to do that. I don't know. I feel like there's a generation of Star Wars fans who might. So I'd fucking buy it. I can tell you that. Yeah. So. Or if, if Disney Plus subscriptions start dropping off, this is another Maybe. thing. Although, did you see the numbers? No. So they released the numbers for, for Disney Plus subscriptions, and I don't have it in front of me, and I can't remember, but it was something ridiculous, like 9 million subscribers on day one. Oh. Um, so yeah. it is a the pretty... The had to crash for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they did, yeah. yeah. They, they had a bit of a thorny first day. I think the only down note for them, because McClunky is all good for them, like it's fun for them but I think the Mandalorian's reviews have been quite scathing so I don't know whether that bodes particularly well mm. but uh, but then I think I've read a couple of reviews who've said that it picks up after episode one so episodes two and three apparently are pretty good You're but the response to one was not great reviews. I haven't seen obviously yet, yeah. I'm trying to you know go cold turkey and just you know, <laughs> until, until the end of March yeah. exactly yeah. so I'm trying to just ignore and mute and all that sort of stuff. Good so, luck with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there are already gifts circulating of the final scene of the episode, so oh, you can't really sake. avoid that. Gosh. But just yes. head in the sand for now. For um, those of us in the UK, 31st of March. Of March. I mean, it's just rude, isn't it? Yes. I, I understand it's business necessary, it is. but it's still rude. It is. I, I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but there is a better Sonic trailer. Are we happier? Yes. We are. We are. He no, no longer looks like nightmare fodder. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was horrifying the first time. It was around. horrifying. He was, yeah. It was. It was. I mean, I don't know if it's quite uncanny valley, but it's definitely uncanny. Like yeah. he had human hands and weird, sexy legs, and it was just. And his face was no. And now he looks like the game character, mm. which is, I think, a good move. Not to mention that trailer was soundtracked by Gangsters Paradise for some reason. Uh, which what is, has Coolio got to do with Sonic the Hedgehog? I have. I mean, no what idea. does Coolio have to do with Dangerous Minds? Because it didn't really fit that film either. But, you That's know, a very good point. Are. But we should. Get Give a shout out to Tyson Heath, who is the guy who led the visual effects team who came in and did all of this. It was really, really impressive. And honestly, in addition to the Sonic looking better, Jim Carrey looks like he's having a lot of fun. He does, yeah. That, that so, was kind I'm, of intriguing. I'm excited to see that trailer. as well. Mm. <laughs> James well, is not excited to see good. that. <laughs> we like Jim Carrey. When he's on form, he's mm. great. Are you getting Batman Forever vibes? Oh, boy. No, I, That's let's... a good thing. Batman Forever is a good thing. Yeah, I, he, had, he was fun in Batman Forever. Mm. I, I've, got, I've got time for Batman, some, a limited amount of time for Batman Forever. <laughs> yeah. uh, hold me through and we kiss me, kill me. But uh, <laughs> not so much this. Like I enjoy a blue speedy hedgehog as much as the next person. Mm. But Carrie in particular on this feels like he is, he is firing on the absurdity cylinder, which I do not oh, appreciate. Oh, yes, you don't like that kind of comedy, so, do you? No. Or the <laughs> other kind of comedy, or the third kind of comedy, but you're willing to sometimes allow the fourth kind of yeah. comedy, but only in limited My comedy tastes are quite mm. specific. We had, a very, we had a very long conversation this week about why you'd dismiss Parks and Rec as being the comedy of embarrassment, mm. like The Office. And I had to explain at some length it isn't that. And you That's true, so maybe I should give that a chance, because I always thought it was Fremdschaman comedy. Wow. Uh, which, is, which is the type of comedy I truly, truly cannot sit through. Parts and Wreckers on my list. I have not watched it yet. What? I know. Both I know. of you get out. I'll do the podcast on my own. <laughs> I still got Succession and other stuff like uh, that to watch. And yeah. No, but Parks and Rec is comforting and, and joyous and just the pick-me-up you need after Succession. So it's perfect. Okay. Um, also, in slightly painful news, the Joker movie has now passed a billion dollars at the box office. So that's a thing that's happened. Wow. You know, 
what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Helen's, uh, <laughs> Helen's enjoyment of that film, shall we say, was limited. But um, There was enjoyment. I'm quite surprised that it's done that well. I mean, not I'm not surprised in that anything attached to Batman is obviously going yes. to attract a certain amount of attention. And but... I, I think it's the I think it's been very successfully marketed as the comic book film for people who think they're above comic book films. Mm. And I think that that has worked enormously well for them and obviously continues to do so. It is I... still, for the record... A comic book movie, you're all children, just like the, us Marvel fans. It just has the trappings of intellectuality yeah. that you so crave. Do you think? Which... Do you think it's the comic book movie that Martin Scorsese would approve of? Essentially, that's well, what he literally saying. does. Mm. Yeah. He literally produced mm. it. So, if I were a cynical person, I'd say that you know the current <laughs> discussion fed into that billion-dollar box office quite well. Yeah. I don't think he's that cynical. I don't think he is. But, geez, it didn't hurt that film's box office. No, no, it didn't. Which comic book success story is more surprising to you, Joker or Venom? Venom, Venom. is inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely inexplicable. It is an objectively terrible film, and everyone went to see it. I can only assume they left morose, disappointed, and cheated. Much but... like leaving the Joker. Indeed. <laughs> but, but they did go and see it. And I was like, but, but they saw the trailers, right? Like, it looked terrible in the trailers yeah. it looked like what it is in the trailers and yet people liked it I am a loser too Eddie <laughs> fuck off with all that being said I am intrigued about Venom 2 and Andy Circus well Circus. Andy Circus, yeah mm. Andy Circus. Yeah. I've, I've, in, in Circus we trust I, I weirdly think that and Venom 2 might ultimately be a decent film mm. well when they um, had fun with Venom there was there was potential there you could see something that could work the kind of mm. more absurd moments I'm sorry James but they were the more absurd mm. moments actually worked really well and so maybe if they kind of lean into that in the sequel then they could be really onto something just have um, Eminem back on the soundtrack also, you can explain to me the importance of Mark Wahlberg apparently joining Uncharted. Wasn't he at one point going to play Nathan Drake, and now he's playing? Like... He's Sully now, isn't he? Okay, yeah. which is he's like a mentor. Sully's his elderly yeah. mentor. Elderly, uh, yeah. So, like, he's, he's you know he's not a spring chicken. It mm. seems like a slightly, but then this is young. This, this is, young is young Nathan Nick Drake, so with, I guess it makes and, sense. And in fairness, Tom Holland, not yeah. that one, the other one, yeah. is a spring chicken. So. so, so I mean, I guess it works in that regard. Mm. But again, I'm, I'm not. Honestly, and ultimately what it comes down to is I'm not on board for any Uncharted film that doesn't feature Nathan Fillion as Nathan Drake. And ultimately, <laughs> I will not be moved from that position. So much as I love Tom Holland, I'm not there for this. Oh Did you watch the YouTube fan film? Yes, it's amazing it's and really I love good. it. And they should stretch that over an hour and a half and release it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, honestly, I, I won't That's believe... That's John Voight as Sully, as I recall in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I won't believe this movie is getting made until <laughs> I, you know, speed the press release that, you know, day one of filming has started. Because how many different iterations yeah. has this gone through? Well, I feel so. like Mark Wahlberg was connected for actually quite a long time mm. at one point. So, you know. I should also say, like, while we're talking about video games, someone needs to make the, the movie of Death Stranding. So this is just a new I, game. I thought, movie, I thought Death Stranding was the movie of Death Stranding. I mean, it is point. a little bit. So this came out, I guess, when this goes out, it'll be last week, won't yeah. it? So <laughs> this is a game where it's delivery. It's a delivery simulator, which features Guillermo del Toro, who randomly turns a character called Die Hardman, and then Edgar Wright, who pops up for no reason to give you a parcel to deliver. And also him from Walking Dead. Yes, and also I mean, has Norman Reedus, who drinks a lot of Monster Energy drinks. It is absolutely batshit in a level I don't think I've ever encountered in a game before. I like my video games, but I've 
you know, read and watched a few reviews of this game, and it seems like you're walking from A to B a lot. And yes. that to me is very boring it, to play. It is literally delivery. You have the delivery pack was kind of on your back, and the whole mechanics of the game are: can you deliver these boxes from A to B without falling over? I can't see myself enjoying it. I've, again, I've, I've watched reviews and, I, and I've seen a lot of positive you know, stuff on social media, but I'm just like, no. I know, but I feel boring. like when Guillermo del Toro asks you to deliver, deliver a box <laughs> to someone on the other side of a mountain, you just do it. Aren't you going to ask, what's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> what's in the box? A little bit, a yeah. little bit. I would be worried, that's all I'm saying. I want to see this film. Make it um, happen. <laughs> also in news this week, Paul Thomas Anderson has announced that his next film will be a 1970s high school movie. I heard this and I just started having flashbacks to like Richard Linklater sort <laughs> of dazed and confused kind of movies. But Paul Thomas Anderson making a good movie, a new movie is, well, actually the two are synonymous. A good new movie from Paul Thomas Anderson is always good news. So... I'm still here for it. I'm just like, what? why 70s? don't know. We will find out. We will. Mm, very good news. Also, The Little Mermaid has found her Prince Eric. It will be Jonah Hauer King, who you will, of course, remember from Little Women, not that one, the TV <laughs> one from a couple of Christmases ago. So the one who isn't Timothy Chalamet, but who also played, as I remember, Laurie in that film. I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest, that he's handsome enough to play Prince Eric. I'm not sure, however who in the world is handsome enough <laughs> to play Prince Eric, so I'm willing to allow him. He seems like a nice young actor. Fair enough. Yeah. Kevin Feige's been saying things this week. Yeah. Oh, no, please tell me it's not about anything. Well, he did respond to the Martin Scorsese thing, though very diplomatically, of I thought, in a kind of He's like, so well, everyone has a different view of art, and look at what we've done. We pit our characters against each other in Civil War. Fucking hell, we killed half of them in Infinity War. I mean, yes. So, and I and think these are back. all solid points. <laughs> but more importantly, he made a comment about Disney+, Plus, mm. which incensed a lot of people, which was that you will not understand the full story of the MCU unless you watch the Disney Plus shows. I mean, that's been obvious for a little while, yeah. actually. I feel I feel for some of them. Like, I, I wonder whether like, WandaVision feels like something that will be a, a nice diversion. Hmm. But I don't know that that's necessary, unless it tees up your multiverse of madness. But I feel like it's... Well, I think it does, though. Uh, I, I, I mean... Or ties into it, at the very least. This feels a lot like when people were like, oh, you know, if you don't watch Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you won't. And it's like, that's not really true, though, yeah. is it? But that's because they were always actually on different schedules. That is And that true. was a more wishful thinking on our part than anything else. Because there was just, it was never possible to plan those shows around the Marvel movies. That was why the events of Captain America, the, uh, the Winter Soldier, came as such an unwelcome surprise to the <laughs> showrunners. But um, again, Almost when... immediately. But they, they dealt with it yeah. very well. But there was no way that they were going to be able to kind of leave on that so but, you might have something like that where things happen in the movies that then have repercussions mm. in these shows I don't know how much there will be going the other way because you still have to make the movies work on and their even own. though he said this and it makes sense for him to say this sure. because he's trying to feed the beast and he wants people to subscribe to Disney Plus but I would be ex I mean it would fundamentally be bad filmmaking if you made films that didn't make sense without having watched a TV show first and I don't believe for one second he would entertain that will you get perhaps a deeper understanding and background exactly. knowledge from having watched it sure why not but I don't think it's going to Will that enjoyment. one character have had lots more backstory that will yeah. add meaning to that Absolutely. line? Hundred percent. Yeah, but I don't. In the same way that you get more out of, for example, watching Solo if you've seen 
uh, Rebels and Clone Wars because you understand the sort of Maul legs thing, his evolution as a character. Yes, that adds more to it. Do you need to have seen it? No, of course you don't. Yeah. And I think that's very much the case here, but that didn't stop the internet from burning Feige in effigy for trying to make them <laughs> watch mean, Disney+. Plus. Yeah. It must be a day ending and why? Um, <laughs> speaking of burning people in effigy, just before we finish up, Blumhouse is making a new Black Christmas and announced this week that it would be a PG-13, which had people incensed because, oh my God, every horror movie must be an R. Because the internet. Because the internet. Um, and actually the, the filmmakers have kind of come back and gone, no, this played really well with sort of teenage girls, quite frankly, and we want them in our audience. We welcome them into our audience. Why wouldn't you want them to have an introduction into horror, you idiots? They didn't say that last bit. I'm, I'm kind of free wailing there, but I feel like that sentiment was underlying it. So that's happening, and apparently the, the word from those test screenings is good, but I don't know for sure, so okay. we shall see you soon. So I think that's most of it. Anything else for news for you guys? I was just going to say, while we're talking about MCU, mm. um, some Disney Plus artwork and clips have been released online showing a little bits and pieces from What If and yes. also showing the new V-designs for Bucky and Falcon's cap costume. Which, I like Falcon's cap costume, but I actually prefer his comic book cap costume to well, it. This isn't really cap. This seemed to be like somewhere halfway in the middle, right? This is... The, the, the costume, at least in the concept art that we've seen, is closer to the animated series than the comic book cap costume. Earth's Mightiest Heroes, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes is a really, really good cartoon, by the way. Um, check out. So I enjoyed it. But yeah, I check out uh, Falcon's comic book cap costume. It's much better. And Bucky, uh, we, we are lamenting the loss of his hair. Um, R.I.P. Long Hair, yeah, he's gone back to the sort of World War II cut. Although, in the animated What If little little clip that we've seen, he's got his hair back, he's fighting zombie cap. Uh, You can can do that with animation. You can, you can do that with animation. And also, I mean, I've had this discussion with Amon before, I have an objection to Marvel zombies, almost entirely because they made Wolverine a zombie, which I don't think fits his healing factor. No. Genuinely, that's my principal objection to the entire He'd be an comics. unstoppable zombie because he has an adamantium skull, so you couldn't shoot him in the head. That's true. How about through the eyeball? Maybe through the eyeball. Okay. Glad I could help. Um, <laughs> so I have a question about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay. So you're the Falcon, right? And Cap comes up to you and says, it's time, and gives you a shield. And you're like, dude, I've got fucking wings. What the hell am I going to do with this? Like, he has no super strength. And I feel like Captain America works with a, let's be honest, a shield is an accessory. He works because he's a super soldier. You give, you know, Falcon a shield and he's just a dude with a shield. The man has wings. An like, what? He's downgrading shield. to hold a shield. He's not, he still hey, has shield. the wings. Yeah. He can use the he wings. Flies. While, he flies. Yeah, he can use the shield while he's airborne. He's yeah. not going to, though, is And he? the shield totally I, I, doesn't... I will take that bet. <laughs> The shield totally doesn't obey the laws of gravity. Like, we know that. So, yeah, but I know, like to think a lot of that from. is because Cap's super strong. I think, you know, you give it to, you give it to, to Falcon. He's, A, not going to be able to lift it. It's probably too heavy for him. Yes, uh, oh, my goodness. In the end of Endgame, what are you talking so about? So negative yeah. are you. I, yeah, I'm, I'm not feeling it. Anyway, adamantium isn't heavy. It's like mithril. I think you'll find it's vibranium, Helen. Sorry. Vibranium isn't heavy anyway. <laughs> I think you'll find it's like mithril. Okay. Sure. See, that was a geeky level of geekiness, <laughs> whole thing. Um, by the way, the Roosters are making a film about the rivalry between Marvel and DC, but it's a documentary. Yeah, so, I saw that. Yeah, that's, that should be interesting. Mm. I mean, there, there might be accusations of bias. Yeah, I'm just I mean, is this an objective <laughs> look? <laughs> I'm sure they, they will be objective, and I'm sure they will have great people from both sides. Yeah, very um, fine people <laughs> on both very sides. Very fine people from both sides. I think it's time for another interview. 
And we have a real treat for you. The director of Le Mans 66, if you're in this country, or if you're in America, the director of Ford versus Ferrari, James Mangles. It's a Mangles. better title. Yep. It is a better title. Apparently it was quite hard to clear with legal on this side of the pond. What? Um, oh. <laughs> is James Mangold. So he has had an incredibly eclectic career so far, making the likes of Girl Interrupted, Kate and Leopold, seriously, <laughs> Logan, of course, um, Amazing 310 movie. to Yuma. He's basically done every genre going. And so it was perhaps only natural that he would come to the genre of films about men in room talking about cars that you don't <laughs> have to like car racing to like. Uh, so myself and Chris went along to talk to him in London recently and find out more about Le Mans 66. So James Mangle, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank, Thank you for you. coming in. Great um, to be here. With uh, Le Mans 66 or Ford versus Ferrari, <laughs> do you have strong feelings on the title of the US versus the UK? This was one of those movies where, in a way, it's the most unfortunate thing is we never landed on a title while we were shooting it. <laughs> and so then it becomes a bit of a free-for-all upon release yeah. with each territory. You know, the biggest problem you have is that, well, one of the reasons I think it traumatizes the British press so much is that usually the UK title and the USA title are the same. Yeah. Easy. But all the other territories, I've never had a movie where, like, Girl Interrupted isn't called Girl Interrupted in France. True. It's called Le Blah 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 Silence. <laughs> or in Spain, not the same. In Brazil, different. In Greece, different. In China, certainly different. So the real trauma is just why two titles in English-speaking territories? And the only answer I can offer you is it's kind of, it's a group of factors. One is that apparently Ford v. Ferrari is not something we could call it in the UK because of trademark. Press uh, laws are different uh, yeah, here yeah, yeah. than there, where you're not allowed to use a trademark that the company who owns it hasn't given you permission mm. to use in a title. Mm -hmm. And so clearly, I mean, I think ultimately Ford will get good things out of this movie, as mm -hmm. will Ferrari. But I don't think either company was in a position when I wouldn't even show them the movie yeah. yet to uh, give us a pass to on using their trademark. Yeah. yeah. Beyond that, I think there's also, through much of Europe, a feeling that everyone knows Le Mans. Mm -hmm. And in USA, I think one out of 20 people would know what Le Mans is. So there's that going on as well. <laughs> the yeah. educational factor yeah. as well. Also, once you, once you call a film Le Mans, you have the film Le Mans to deal with as well. So is that why there's 66 in, in the title? Well, guess, certainly I don't think we could call it exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. um, I, wouldn't want it, I wouldn't have wanted to. Although... If we're realists about it, how many, I mean, maybe you're a very specific audience. There's a hell of a lot of people aware of films like Le Mans or Grand Prix, but so many of our, right. Yeah, okay. Uh, but the uh, but the reality is among the current cinema-going generation, those movies, were, you know, you're talking about one in 50 people who are yeah. aware. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this film's been kind of on your radar, I think, since before The Wolverine. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's been, right. It's been there I, um, I w it was not only on my radar, but I, when I got the script to The Wolverine, which was right around the time Darren stepped off it, mm. I was on a meeting at Fox trying to get them to let me make this movie. Oh, wow. But it was they still were working on a different package with a director and different actors, and it was kind of locked up in that, and I was just a pirate trying to steal something. <laughs> so it was made clear to me. I didn't know that, of course. I don't go normally flying in and trying to steal other directors' films. Um, <laughs> but I just read a script and said, what's happening with this? Mm -hmm. But the struggle with this film, I think, has always been the natural fear in our modern age that there's no one over 25 who goes to the movies anymore mm -hmm. and that it's an expensive proposition to make a film like this mm -hmm. and without 
you know, an IP, a character uh, that is a known draw or a kind of property that is a known draw to a very specific base of audience, you don't have a guaranteed return on your dollar. Mm. I mean, for many in your audience, the simple reality studios, I wouldn't call them evil or good. They're just a kind of impassive in the sense that they have a very simple rule. Mm. I think William Goldman first put a finger on it, which is they assume your movie will be shit. <laughs> and 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 which is not unreasonable because sure. as directors and filmmakers we don't bat a thousand. So if they're putting their money on the line, they assume you're going to make a mess. And if you make a mess, can they still sell it? Can they still sell a mess? <laughs> yeah. And so with a superhero theme or a known character or an or an ongoing franchise, they can actually do the estimations of whether this film will be a success, even if it's shit. <laughs> and that that way, if I succeed at making a good one, it's just gravy. It's cherries. It's 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 all the better. But, you know, if you get down to it, when you're buying a house and you inspect the house, your house inspector is wondering how the house is going to hold up in the rain, yeah. Yeah. how the house will hold up if the landslides or there's a mudslide or how much of a fire danger your house is. So clearly, even in our own lives, we buy things assuming that we can't think less of the studios for assuming the worst because most of us in our decisions if we are to survive in this modern world, don't make all their decisions out of romance. Yeah. <laughs> um, we make them out of some realism about what dark shit could happen. Yeah, we're yeah. trying yeah. to play it safe. You're trying to play it. We're trying to survive. <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you kind of hedge for that? Is that part of getting like this amazing cast? Because this is it's an embarrassment of riches. This, well, this thank group. you. That's they are. I am honored by all these actors who joined us, particularly not only in the leading roles, mm. which which you can imagine are really attractive, but even in the supporting roles, yeah. there's just a wealth of talent and. Your question's, like, interesting because on one level, it's not like you go, oh, well, my movie topic isn't much of a draw, so I need better than shit actors. You know, you don't, you, you, you're always trying to get an amazing cast. Yeah, of course. Um, but, the, but the fact is that whatever it was about Jez and John Henry's script, the topic, the world, and I think what drew me to the material was never racing. I'm not a big racing guy. Mm -hmm. um, what drew me were there were great characters everywhere you looked, whether you're talking about Enzo Ferrari or Henry Ford II, who are much more interesting than on the surface, yeah. to certainly Ken Miles and Carol Shelby, who are unique and you know dependent upon each other and really unforgettable characters to all the, all the creatures who inhabit the pit and the and the engineering world um, and the way they're all interconnected and competing with one another yeah. I think was really attractive to actors yeah so let's let's say for example that pre Wolverine you had got the green light on this movie and you had snatched it away from that other director, Jim. It strikes me as well, you could have still made it with, with Christian Bale and uh, Matt Damon. Or well, you did mean, you have... Yeah. You mean eight years ago or yeah. something? Sure. Yeah. Or did you have uh, different uh, different actors in mind? Even no, no. I, I At the time I was stalking it, I didn't even have actors in mind. I just had in mind trying to get my hands on it. <laughs> because I felt it, it possesses... I mean, this project kind of possesses everything I'd love to do in the current climate of film, mm -hmm. which is... It seems to me, I love to work on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And as long as the world is letting me work on the big screen, I'm going to work on the big screen. It's a big screen story. It's a story that justifies the movie going experience. Not only um, action, but also 
the style of the period, the, the look of that period, the recreation of this kind of innocent romantic moment in sports before the world was taken over by television mm. and sponsorship. And when these characters were kind of mavericks, mm. cowboys in a way themselves, and there was a kind of magic to the way they were risking life and limb without computer models or uh, risk-averse abilities to build these cars. You had to just put your lives on the line. All that was so bloody interesting to me. But what I was really trying to answer in your question was what makes it the kind of movie I love to make is I miss these movies. Mm -hmm. Meaning I miss when the David Leans of the world were making pictures and there were movies that were for grown-ups that were adult films with adult characters having real-life problems, paying their taxes, holding their family together, staying afloat, fulfilling their dreams, and that the problems of the characters in the movie weren't oriented toward an audience of 13-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> and that we've all gotten so used to it that we've actually kind of disconnected and connect, you know, when we watch movies, we kind of, I mean, I even think on the level of folks who do what you do, we all just put on our 13 year old inner self hat and absorb the film through the prism of kind of our younger selves. And that, but I do think there's a hunger and it's answered when you see certainly the success I felt with Logan mm -hmm. or what we may see happening right now with Joker and other films. There's no reason we can't combine fantasies and ideas with adult themes mm. because that's what cinema has always done. It's just that the audience on a business model level has so shifted toward children that every film has to be kind of maintaining this foot in each door. I love to make films for a whole family. Mm -hmm. I love to make films accessible for everyone. But sometimes it would be nice to see an action picture that wasn't idiotic or that didn't build its characterizations on the head of a pin. Mm. I do think that the, the characterization in this one was great and the balance of action to character work and to, you know, men in rooms talking scenes, which which I tend to love if they're smart men uh, and mm. get really bored. Also, there's not. things at stake. And even though yeah. it's talking or a kind of chamber piece, there's something at stake. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone can't be watching The Crown or, or Fleabag or, or all the other amazing pieces we see on Netflix or HBO or otherwise. The, I mean, even Game of Thrones is mostly chamber pieces oh, yeah, of, sure. of mm. brinksmanship between mm. characters. So audiences clearly have a thirst for that. And those are adult pieces. I mean, Game of Thrones is an adult piece. Mm -hmm. So what's frustrating is that the theatrical movie experience has been somehow in Fantalized, inf however you'd say it, adolescentized, <laughs> while the cable or television or streaming experience is aiming itself squarely at us 30 plus year olds who don't leave the home anymore. Yeah. So this gets me in a 12 minute roundabout way to making movies like this as an effort to kind of sustain the original film as a theatrical event, not just the small independent original film that may play for three weeks in an mm. art cinema, but mm. a movie for everyone. And when we use the word characterization, it sounds like some cod liver oil. It just means these are characters you like who are yeah. interesting, who surprise <laughs> you and, and who have something new to say, yeah. you know? And they do, like continually throughout well, the film. I don't want yes, to get into yeah. spoilers, but, you know, I did not see Ken Miles developing the way that he did. I did not see Carol Shelby developing the, the way point. that he did. And the, that's the, thank you, that's the point. 
And in many ways, I saw in our run-up with the movie before a lot of the press had seen it, everyone's reaction to the movie is, oh, I know what this is. Just a two-hour car ad with and we know exactly how it's going to end. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I couldn't give less of a shit about the cars. And it doesn't end like you think it does. So it's like this kind of, it's just, a, but plus, I'm always amazed. They never say that shit about Marvel movies. And it's absolutely true. So the 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 reality is that... Everyone assumes the worst, assumes we'll, in, we'll, we'll lean into every trope and everything will end up with every fanny getting padded in a way that is, <laughs> that is obvious or, or stereotypical. And I, I, my whole attraction to this story was that from the moment I first read it almost 10 years ago, nothing turned out the way I thought it yeah, was. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, far from being a car ad, you know, this points to some real problems in the corporate culture, essentially, of Ford in particular, a Ferrari maybe to a lesser extent. And it, it, it felt like there was maybe a parallel there with the way that certain other big businesses that you may have had experience with. Certainly. it's a, I identify hugely with these characters and the struggle to make a car is not mm-hmm. much different than the struggle to make a movie. You know, I'm not trying to level blame at anyone in particular. I don't think it's about blame. I think these are the forces of our world culture. And this is in the mid 60s. It's this kind of turning point as corporate culture is taking over. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, Ford manufactures cars for working people, affordable cars. Ferrari manufactures cars no one can afford, <laughs> except the very rich or racers. So they ones. it's really the story of a battle between a kind of working class manufacturer trying to get the cool or acquire the cool of an aristocratic yeah. car manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And that to me in itself is interesting because it speaks so much to all of our quests. You know, I even find Ford's quest sympathetic yeah. in that they feel dumpy and dumped upon, but they're not even in the same realm as Ferrari. Ferrari Mm. isn't out to make money. In fact, he's going bankrupt. Mm. It's a Cahote-esque journey of just making the very best bloody thing he ever can. In fact, if anyone has similarity in the movie, it would be Ken Miles and Enzo are similar characters because it's kind of, they, they don't care or think about tomorrow. They are just in pursuit of perfection. Yeah. And that's a really beautiful, um, for me, an artistic metaphor, but also a kind of romantic sentiment that I wish more people had today. Yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, uh, by the way, Jim, I love the fact that you're saying bloody quite a lot. Is that, do you adapt to It's totally, to I'm, like, I'm like when the Clintons go to the South or the, it's, uh, I've been here a couple of days, so it just starts to eke in. I also found myself describing an apartment as a flat. So I'm, 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 I'm I've completely, I'm, I, give me another two weeks, I'll start it with an accent. Oh my God. Everything will be brilliant. Anyway. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Fully anglicized. Uh, so when you're making I'm the like movie, I'm like Madonna. <laughs> There's an image that I, I will not get out of my yes, head. Just, uh, just, uh, well, we both direct pictures. That's, there you go. Um, this is true. This is very, very true. It goes that far. That's true. <laughs> so throughout your career, you seem to you've you've always made left turns as a director. You know, you're you're the guy who directed Copland, but also Kate Leopold. The guy who directed Night and Day, but also Three Ten to Yuma. And none of Lewis films are the same. But do you see thematic similarities? Is there something that, that drives all those movies for you? Yes. First of all, I, it doesn't have to be thematic. It's mm. kind of my love. I'm making movies I want to see. And, the, you know, every time I jump on a movie, it's a two, three, five-year experience developing mm. it and making it. And I'm also trying to develop myself. You know, 
Billy Wilder went, uh, I mean, he made one comedy or comedic, slightly comedic film in his first 16, mm -hmm. and then is mostly known now as a comedic director. I've only made 10 films. Yeah. So Howard Hawks made westerns yeah. and comedies, and it's only a very newfangled situation that directors are so clearly branded as a teller of one kind of story or another. I don't think Sam Mendes should be reduced to only telling or making one kind of film. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I also think that I'm always in the quest for intimacy or a kind of naturalism or emotion. I mean, I can only describe this is the universal thing for me, that if I'm making a romantic comedy, I want it to be one that's a little less that honors all the classical movements, but is a little less of a product, that there's a little more of a handmade feel, a little more loopy, a little more personal. So for me, whether it's Copland or it's Kate and Leopold or it's 310 to Yuma or Girl Interrupted, this unites all of them together for me, that I'm always after this kind of the ultimate special effect, mm -hmm. if you w would, which is a human thought recorded. Yeah. And each film teaches me something for the next. And I think I suffered a little for this in my early years directing because it's so much easier when guys like you two can put me in a box because then it's easier for, it's also easier <laughs> for me to get hired. You know, yeah. I become the master of, of, of rural cinema or I become the, the, the new master of comedy or I become the new master of horror or yeah. I get anointed something and then I get lots of offers and material yeah. and books come my way all along those lines. But when you're kind of a lifesaver variety pack, you, um, you, you, as a, as a creator, it makes it a lot harder for anyone to figure out what you are. Yeah. You don't end up as an, on as many lists because no one's making lists of all around uh, utility players. They're making yeah. lists of, of the best in a certain category. But I feel like I've reaped the benefits later in my career now where I can make any kind of movie next, mm -hmm. meaning unlike some of my peers who are now kind of locked in a prison of the brand that they've built, I can make a musical, I can make a noir picture, I can make, a, I can make a, an intimate indie-style movie, I can mm -hmm. make a drama, I can make a war movie, mm -hmm. and the doors aren't shut to me because the groundwork... I've made enough successful pictures of different stripes yeah. that people have a confidence that I can handle whatever it is I choose to make. Mm -hmm. Can I say one more thing about that? Of course that? you can. You know, when I first started, like most directors starting out, you just want to be a great filmmaker, mm -hmm. right? And that makes you tight because it's like you're, every moment you're shooting has to be bloody great, mm. has to be great. Mm. And you're trying, it, I'm also using bloody to replace fucking. No, which that's, is that's right. really, Maybe am I okay we're, with we're fucking? We're fine with it's fucking. Very okay. Yeah. okay, well then I'll just do fucking. The, uh, <laughs> um, you want everything to be fucking great and it makes you tight. It makes you really, really tight on the set. Everything is so precious. You feel like your career hangs in the balance if you don't make your great opus. If this isn't as good as Fellini or or Antonioni or 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 you know John Ford, then you're washed up. Yeah. But it produces a kind of paralysis, at least for me, of stress. And when after a first couple serious movies or movies where you had hopes of you know, going to Cannes like I did on Copland or getting honored in different ways as my actors did on Girl Interrupted. You suddenly make a movie like Kate and Leopold and, you know, well, there's no way I'm ever going to any award show or being hailed <laughs> in the Pantheon for this picture. And it produces this relaxation 
Yeah. It's like Bruce Springsteen recording Nebraska on a cassette machine. You're just alone with your material. You don't have this stress. You don't feel like you're going to have to get over some limbo bar of perceived excellence. You just try and make the best movie you can. And after making Identity and Kate and Leopold coming back to, quote, the serious Oscar-y picture yeah. with Walk the Line... I was really amazed how much more relaxed I was on set, mm. how much more playful. What a better director I thought I was for having made movies with a lighter touch where I learned how sometimes really good things can happen on set when I'm not squeezing the orange so hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, for the record, I would absolutely see a James Mangold musical. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> but, good. I mean, according to IMDb, you're... We're working you're, on them. Well, you're linked to about eight different things, I think, at the moment. Can you tell us what's next? Do you know yet? I can't. Okay. I can't, not only because I can't, but I can't because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally working on about eight different things, and I'm just seeing what happens to feel right for the next moment. Um, all of them, I think, will happen. I think they're all really great. I mean, I'm in a great place, but it's about which script feels strongest, the right cast assembles, mm -hmm. and feels right for the time. Mm -hmm. It's a really tricky time in movies, and I think that you need them to play or work for an audience to come out and see them, and I want to make sure we're offering something. I, I think things are going to get better, yeah. but I think it's really tough right now. So I'm trying to make sure we do things that also get seen. Yeah. Just very, very quickly, Jim. The Force. I love that book, Don Winslow's book. And you are attached to that? I mean, there, there oh, was yes. talk uh, we've about... Been, uh, Scott Frank and I have been working away on a draft of it. Yeah. I'm not writing off anything. All these <laughs> things are possible. Yes. And you also said that, you, uh, that each movie teaches you something to take into the next. So what did Logan teach you going into... To the Mall in 66. Well, Logan taught me, if anything, a confidence that my own taste can sell. Mm. I really had my seatbelts fastened for a wholesale rejection by fans, given, I mean, not only did we challenge the kind of normalized Marvel tone completely, top to bottom, mm -hmm. and not only did we leave threads hanging and not even deal with our connections to the, quote, universe, <laughs> um, but I took, for good measure in writing the script, a couple shots at the comic world. And out of love, I love those movies as well, but I felt, you know, I, I inhabit the character that I'm writing about when I work on a film, and in the case of Logan, I think it's the ultimate craziness when fans are like, why isn't he wearing his uniform? A guy like Logan <laughs> would never wear a fucking uniform. He hates being a superhero. Why would he be walking around with like a with like a, 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 a trademarked outfit on? It doesn't make any sense. I'm trying to make this character real. And this guy doesn't like being famous. He doesn't like being a superhero. By what logic would he in the morning after a, a coffee and a, a bathroom trip go to putting on a trademarked outfit with a, with a logo <laughs> on it for the team he is part of? But all that angst on my end got out in the movie and in a weird way um, got enjoyed um, yeah. in yeah. the good nature it was being offered in, yeah. but also in the reality we were creating. Well, that, that line point. in the script, which was put out there, the, the CG city-destroying fuckathon, has yes. now passed into legend. That is... Well, it is what we feared. And what I even found that the pressure on me when I was making Wolverine, well, there's this kind of logic about the action and how often the action should occur and how big the action should be. And everything's gotten very 
programmed. And I think that one of my great regrets is to the degree that sometimes the Twitterverse and the hardcore fans of these medium actually play into the way they've been marginalized. People think they need to be fed certain things to be happy. And then when they aren't fed them, the audience does go nuts. And it proves the marketeers right that they've achieved a formula. And we just have to keep making this soil and green and everyone will be happy. And that I really think the reason we love comic books, those that us that love comic books, I'm not talking about comic book movies, but comic books, yeah. was that the Jack Kirby's made things anew. Yeah. They mm-hmm. didn't draw last year's Silver Surfer. They didn't draw last year's Fan Four. They didn't. Superman was reinvented seven times to the point where they had to create a golden and a platinum and a whatever universes they had to to account for all these reinventions and remakings that filmmakers are bound to this kind of idea of a fastidious connection to one another only reduces us to making episodes in the world's most expensive television show as opposed to really exploring cinematically what can be done. And it, to any degree, Marty's recent comments that made yeah. the headlines, in I Magazine. think refer more to that. I think making a generalization about all Marvel movies or all any movies is extremely dangerous mm-hmm. because there's great shit happening at yeah. Marvel. Mm-hmm. There's great filmmakers working for them. There's great filmmakers working on Star Wars universes and other sequels and originals, all sorts of stuff. But whenever we get into an assumption and a feeling you get sometimes from some of these films that they're more about selling you on the next movie than the one you're currently watching or on a kind of product line or that's where I start to detach and start to wonder whether it's, quote, cinema or just marketing on the most galactic scale. Well, weirdly, that's where I think some of the attempts to ape the Marvel model have fallen down because mm. of that, because it's been so nakedly about yes. setting up a universe. No, you have to have a story and, to tell. Yeah, you have absolutely. to have a story to tell. And also what I think Kevin Feige and Marvel have been really smart about is that in most cases, they don't see, I don't think, the superhero film as a genre. No. They make a comedy or they'll make us a kind of a bridge over the river choir or a kind of the last, you know, um, they'll make a, they'll make a war picture or they'll make a, you know, a kind of force, a uh, kind of guns of Navarone picture, or they'll make a comedic heist movie. But in each case, I think they assign just like we did with Logan as a Western kind of noir, you assign a kind of genre to your film and then allow these well-known characters to exist and explore that genre as opposed to assuming the genre itself is just create a big villain, hire a famous British person to play them, (laughs) give them a costume that doesn't look like the last movie and will please the fans, have everyone reassemble, slightly tweak the outfits so that magazines like yours can do stories on the quote new look and on and on. But it's like, The real fun in those films that came from Guardians or came from Ant-Man or some of the great moments Mm -hmm. in in the Avengers movies is where where the films embraced their kind of roots in war movies and Hercules pictures and heist movies. And the lineage goes back further than six years. Yeah. Yeah. James Mangold, we could talk to you all day, but uh, sadly you're being snatched away from us. But it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. uh, My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Always look forward to seeing you when the next mystery project reveals itself. (laughs) All right, time for reviews, which are this week brought to you by the letter L and the person Adam Driver. <laughs> so let's let loose with the, with the L's first. Let's talk, in fact, about Le Mans 66. Okay, let's do it. This is, as you have said, James Mangold's film about Le Mans, the 24-hour race in 
Yes, you guessed it. 1966. Hey. Uh, then I just throw this shit together. So this uh, stars Matt Damon as Carol Shelby, the famous car designer behind the Shelby Mustang, among other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and driver Ken Miles, the time played by Christian Bale, uh, who's a, a sort of a volatile car driver who's enlisted here to take Ford up against Ferrari, which at the time was unthinkable because Enzo Ferrari essentially dominated that race in the Le Mans 24 hour in 1966. Yeah. What's hilarious in this story, by the way, you'll, you'll already have got it from there, is that Ford is the plucky underdog <laughs> and Ferrari is the behemoth in that scenario. Yeah. Before they got bought by Fiat. Spoiler. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this is is an interesting one. I really wasn't sure whether I was going to like this film Mm. because I'm not a big fan of racing. I just, and if I thought, God, and a 24-hour race just is my idea of living hell. And yet, and yet, this is really compelling and it's character-led. Like Ken Mars, Bale is brilliant as Mars. He's volatile. His arc is fascinating about how he gets screwed over by Ford and, and, you know, how he approaches it all. He's a a really interesting kind of person who's, well, got his own demons to deal with, but also is one hell of a driver. Mm -hmm. And then I think Matt Damon does a really good job as a sort of charismatic car designer who's also trying to navigate managing miles, but then managing upward to the head of Ford. And then you've got Josh Lucas as a Leo Beebe, who's the kind of Ford's number two, who, if I have to say of every character in this film, he's the one that didn't work for me because he's almost sort of a a sort of cut-out corporate goon. Uh, And I felt I'd be interested to see how close to reality his storyline is because that (laughs) felt like Hollywood embellishment to me. But I very much enjoyed this. It's not a short film. This no. is two and a half hours long, which in some ways makes a certain amount of sense because much as it is an endurance race, <laughs> the Aww. film is also a bit of an endurance race. And by the end of it, you feel a lot like you've been driving for 24 hours. But even though it is long, it is also very good. It is really good. Um, it's it's a lot of men in rooms talking. Like a There is lot a lot of, of that. Men. There's also a like, lot of men in cars driving. So there's both. There is, but weird. Like, I don't care about car races. Like, I'll tell you mm. that now. And I find this film fascinating anyway because it is a lot about car corporate culture it is a yeah. lot about um bureaucracy and if that doesn't float your boat what will <laughs> no but in a, in an interesting way like it's looking at all these different forces that kind of collide mm. and get in the way of themselves yeah. so it's not just man in car versus other drivers it's man in car versus corporate overlords yeah. versus company politics versus all these sort of little elements and, and even down to the fact that they have a problem with the car that the brakes keep overheating and then it's the legal wranglers of whether or not it's technically within the rulebook to remove the whole brake assembly mid-race. That doesn't sound very interesting, but actually, in the context of the film, it's really good. And also, you should know that this film has a habit of cutting very regularly to John Berenthal's Lee Iacocca, who's another car legend, just having reaction shots. He has so many reaction shots in this film. He's like dressed like Don Draper, has reaction shots every five minutes. It's amazing. But what's brilliant about this, their head of marketing is the fucking Punisher. But he's also <laughs> built like the fucking Punisher. <laughs> so their head of marketing looks like he could literally tear anyone's head off while he's sitting there sort of gurning at them. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I thought it was fun. I love John Berntal. And frankly, yeah. I think he should be in everything. He should. Yeah. So, Genuinely. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I, I had this uh, conversation online with Hannah Woodhead. We were literally saying this should be a condition of your film being up for Oscars <laughs> is that you have at least five minutes worth of John Berenthal reaction shots spread throughout the film. It, I mean, randomly. I want it. But it yeah, work. no, I completely agree. I had a lot of fun with this. Me and Helen, we actually watched this at 8 a.m. We did, that's and, right. And, you know, anytime you're fully engrossed in the movie at that time of the day, you know that it's working. And I was really fully yeah. into it. Yeah. And the bromance between Bale and uh, Damon's characters is great. At one point, they fight and it's just that the wife uh, was played, played by Katrina Balfe. Katrina Balfe. It's a bit um, frustrating 
uh, for her actually because she doesn't get much to do. She doesn't know, which but, is disappointing. She's obviously people will know her from Outlander, right? But she in that scene, she's just watching them. For, it's a very very funny scene. I really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, it's a little predictable, but I was really into it from from the get go. Mm. I really enjoyed it. He, he puts on, I have to say, Bale does an excellent Brummy accent. He sounds a lot like a Peaky Blinder for most of this, which I think a lot, some people were thrown by. But it's a lot of fun, even if it is, like the race, unnecessarily long. That's possibly true. And then we gave it four stars, which is a very strong recommendation. Agree. Sticking with the letter L, let's talk about our other director interview this week, Last Christmas. So, yeah, Last Christmas, uh, Amelia Clark plays Kate, who works a job as an elf in a London store owned by Michelle Yeoh. And whose name is literally Santa. Whose name is Santa, yeah. I like that touch. Yeah, and as we mentioned, she's in a downward spiral, but then she meets Henry Golding, and that brightens up her life. I mean, it, that's fair. Yes. I think we can all agree with that. I had fun with this one. It's forgettable fun, but fun all the same. I think Clark and Golding are very charming together, and Clark is really likable in this movie. She has to sort of carry most of it on her shoulders, and she does that very, very well. Golding does a Bond impression at one point in the movie. <laughs> That's not going to do anything to quieten down those rumours. And I, one thing, would like to see Golding as next Bond once Craig is done in the role. Um, mm. I liked Emma Thompson, who also wrote the movie. Yes, uh, She's very funny as Kate's Yugoslavian mother. And the movie also has a few things to say about Brexit, which yeah. was initially jarring to me, but they circle back to it a couple of times and it ends up being quite effective. I agree mm. with... 10% of what you just said, <laughs> which is my damning of fame plays, in that Emma Thompson wrote it and she's great. And I had so much goodwill going into this because A, I love love actually. So I have a soft spot for, let's be honest, shit Christmas movies. With and Emma Thompson. With Emma Thompson. Yeah. And I love Emma Thompson. So anything she writes, you think it's got to be great. The problem with this is it hits all the schmaltzy notes that something like love actually does. But while she is awesome on every level, she isn't Richard Curtis. And it's not, the writing for this just wasn't up to it for me. Also, and this is where I'm also going to disagree with you Henry Golding was fucking terrible oh, what no, absolutely terrible no. at this not entirely by his own fault because his character is incredibly bland and two dimensional and quite frankly a little bit annoying and quite condescending so I think he's problematic I, I think he's underserved I, d I don't agree that he's condescending because I think that is character actually um, it's like she's like I'm homeless he's like well here's a homeless shelter that I volunteer at you're like how is that helpful Henry well no I think he's I think there's a little bit of almost tough love there which is weird I think it's more a film about her getting her shit together than it is about the romance I and I think that's why some of the romantic scenes feel off but did you not think and I genuinely cannot remember a quote unquote romantic movie where the leads have had so little chemistry as to almost repel each other See, when they're on I screen I didn't feel that at all me neither oh I just I shuddered I was like if there was close to a kissing scene I'd be like ooh ooh it feels weirdly like in their vibe was so not romantic there was so little chemistry I was like this looks like watching a brother kiss a sister what it's is just wrong with you? upsetting you love Star Wars and so. I just I just didn't I just didn't feel the golden love at all and his Bond bit in it is cringeworthy I was like well if you oh, ever were going to be Bond it's not going to happen now oh and the one thing I will say for this is I thought Amelia Clark is this film's saving grace in she that is she is so charming and so likeable and even though sometimes she doesn't have that much to work with no offense emma thompson because some of some of the bits in this there are moments in this genuinely funny so i think it's not like this is all miss for me it's hit and miss there's great stuff in this and there's less good stuff in this but i think clark elevates the stuff that she has that's the bit of good yeah <laughs> yeah, I think she's really good. And I think, weirdly, like she's fallen into an unfortunate rut where she was great in Game of Thrones and most of the other things she's done have been poor. Mm. And people are starting to think, oh, maybe that was it for her. Maybe she can only do 
Daenerys Targaryen. But in this, I think, do you know what? She has chops as a comedy actor and I can see her getting great roles off the back of this. The thing with this film really is, see it for two things. See it for Emma Thompson because her character's great and see it for Michelle Yeoh who is literally the best oh thing Oh my God, and her wardrobe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's incredible. And her one-liners. They like, oh. all look yeah. like, Thompson writes brilliant one-liners for Yo, and Yo delivers them perfectly. And I think the subplot, all of the Yo subplot, is genius. And when, and I won't talk about it in detail, but when Yo gets into the reason why she's called Santa, that was my favourite riff <laughs> oh, in the entire great. film. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is stuff to like in this, but I found there's a lot of stuff to hate in this as well. Oh, you, and all of it is Henry Golding. You Sorry, Henry. Wow. You I'm sure you're screwed. awesome, but not in this. So three stars then. For last Christmas, uh-huh. which is sure. a recommendation, James. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely. That third star is a gift. Okay, let's take a zombie break and let's talk about Little Monsters, which is a new Australian film which stars Lupita Nyong'o as a kindergarten teacher who takes her kids on a class outing. She's lovely. She's wearing a fabulous yellow dress. She <laughs> takes them on a lovely outing. She has her ukulele with her. All is right in the world. They're going to a petting zoo at a farm. And then a zombie outbreak happens. So, what did we think of Little Monsters? I enjoyed it, but... Oh! But, there's a but. So, Alexander England plays Dave, and he's another character who's trying to get his, his shit together. And he has a nephew who he's trying to help out, and he... Well, he's try- He's really gone on the class trip to try yeah. and get with the teacher. And he is a character who for me, doesn't deserve what he gets by the end of the movie. And that was an issue for me. But I still did enjoy this movie. Uh, I think the Taylor Swift to the tie-ins are really, really funny. I had a lot of her songs in my head by the end of the movie. And I would recommend it, but uh, yeah, with caveats. I think it's really cute. I mean, you're right. So Dave's character is awful and he is he's fixed on Miss Caroline. So I think you're meant to see a sort of love interest developing there. But really, he's he's nowhere near her league. She is incredible. We should also mention Josh Gad is in this. He, he plays a sort of kids TV presenter who's um, Teddy McGiggle, I believe is his name. <laughs> great and, character name. Um, great character name. Terrible human being. Yep. It's a zombie movie. I leave it to your imagination what might happen to terrible human beings in this movie. But it is really inventive. I have not seen a zombie movie that focused on tiny children before. And I very much enjoyed that. And I very much enjoyed the fact that Lupita Nyong'o's Miss Caroline acts like a teacher throughout. She keeps counting them to make sure everybody's there. She keeps everybody's spirits up. She worries about juice boxes and, you know, snacks and Mm -hmm. toilet breaks and things like that. She's just adorable and also formidable, and it's a heck of a mix. So I did really enjoy this. It's very funny. It's a very funny zombie movie, although there is a lot of blood and gore as well. We gave this four stars. It's a good week, isn't it? It's a good week. So that wraps up the portion brought to you by the letter L. <laughs> Let's talk to you about the portion brought up by the actor Adam Driver. And we'll do the report first because I feel like we're going to have much more to say about marriage story. So yeah. the report is the story of a Senate staffer, a US Senate staffer, Daniel Jones, who's played by Driver, who is set by Diane Fierstein, the, the uh, Californian senator, who's played by Annette Benning, to investigate the use of torture or enhanced interrogation by the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11. So he spends years on this report, only to find that it threatens never to be released once he's finished. Comes to us from Scott Z. Burns. What did we think of this one? I really liked it. Mm. I think the the second half is much better than the first half. And I think it's partially because you know, the beginning of the movie, it starts off with 
the people who are charging Adam Driver's character to do this, you have to remain sort of emotionally sort of neutral. You can't sort of get emotionally involved that way. And then sort of, you know, unsurprisingly, by the time the second act rolls around, he's very much emotionally involved. Mm. Once that happens, the movie gets a lot more interesting. And Adam Driver is incapable of giving a bad performance. And mm. once, once that emotion really starts to kick in, I really became invested in it. And the second half was really, is really great. Yeah, I think it's good at, at showing that gradual development as well. It shows him going from, you know, he's, he's passionate about the law, he's passionate about doing the right thing, but he's not particularly engaged in this topic above all others until the time goes on and then and then this gigantic report that he's he's um, compiled threatens never to yeah. be seen the, fir- I mean, the first half is a bit of an exposition dump we should say as well I, I mean it has to be it's a fil- yeah. it's just a film by people talking that's i mean you could say the same about the man i think i i feel like it's it's an, this is another you know film that's all about people in rooms talking but Again, they're incredible people playing interesting roles, so you're kind of willing to allow it. But yeah, I think, again, Adam Driver is phenomenal. I feel like this is the film that's going to get lost in the shuffle this week. But even if you don't get to see it now, do look out for it. It is a really heavy, hardcore look at a horrific episode in American history and and indeed, you know, Britain's implicated as well in, in terms of extraordinary rendition and stuff like that. But it is, it's a really, really fascinating film and a really kind of rigorous feeling look at its subject matter so we also gave that one four stars what a freaking week oh Mm. my god and it's only going to get better because now we come to the other Adam Driver movie of the week Marriage Story from Noah Baumbach uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver play a couple Nicole and Charlie an actress and a director who are married and who are breaking up. It's marital bliss in movie form, isn't it? (laughs) Makes you feel good about your relationship. Do you know what it genuinely, weirdly does give you a weird sense of hope for love? I find this really... I find this ultimately very life-affirming in a very strange way that I can't entirely explain. (laughs) Um, But I I think it's an extraordinary film. This is a really even-handed look at both people in the in the marriage and both are decent people both are trying to do their best for their young son both are also trying to do the right thing for them so the the issue is that Nicole's been offered a job in LA she's going to take this job in LA the first time she's maybe made a decision entirely for herself in the 10 years of the marriage. Charlie is still based in New York that's where his theater company is that he is devoted to where his career is and yet they have this son where does the son live? Who does the son live with? How do they balance this life? Can they do it amicably and without any lawyers involved? Or is it necessary to get other people involved in some way? And what will be the implications if they do? So it's dealing with some, I think it's fair to say, enormous issues, right? Yeah. Now, I thought this was incredible. And yeah, you, you said it's very even-handed. Initially, when I came out of the movie, I thought it was very sort of, not very, but slightly sort of skewed towards ScarJo's character. But the more I think about it, the more I think you're right. It's very fairly mm-hmm. even That's a tricky balance to get yeah. right. But uh, Noah Bombat does. The performances are just out of this world. Unbelievable. And, you know, I mean... For for all of Joker's faults, uh, I decline to mention. I'm not also I'm also not a fan of the Joker, um, but Joaquin Phoenix in that film is great. But at the same time, if Adam Driver does not win Best Actor after this, I don't know what we're doing because he is on another supernatural level in this movie. On top of everything else that we know he can do very well, 
and I can apparently sing very well. Yeah. Um, which is just unfair almost. But he is great. Scarlett Johansson is great. It's just messy and raw and human in mm. all the right ways. And I was just devastated by it. It's my second favorite movie currently of 2019. It's, it's very high up in my top 10 as well. I think it's an extraordinary film. There are also other great performances we should men- mention. Laura Dern does mm. turn up as a, as a divorce lawyer that Scarlett Johansson um, consults. Adam Driver's character ends up talking to lawyers played by Ray Liotta, Ray Liotta yeah. and Alan Alda. And they are both amazing, amazing characters as well. There isn't a bum note in this film, I have to mm. say. It is just one of the best things. But it's also funny. It's sad. It's funny. It's warm. It's terrifying. It's upsetting. It's uh, loving. It's hating. It's just and business. On, on top of everything else, it's got a great Randy Newman score too. <laughs> it it's does. just... Yeah, it's yeah. one of the easiest five-star ratings I will ever give a movie. <laughs> Which is what we did. We gave it five stars, and that is a heck of a recommendation. So for those keeping score at home, we have Last Christmas on three stars, which is a recommendation. We have Little Monsters, The Report, and Le Mans 66, all on four stars, and we have Marriage Story on five stars. If you don't go to the cinema this week, there is something wrong with you with the best will in the world. Get out there and see stuff. And what... A week. I mean, Adam Driver must be exhausted. I don't think <laughs> we will see him in another big film for a long time, you know? <laughs> Two films in a week. Oh, he must be home for the duration, wouldn't you say, James? I, I would think, think so, yes. Yeah, he won't be back in cinemas within no, a month. No, yeah. there's no Adam Driver films I can think of no. coming out no. Not anytime no. soon. No, I think that's it. So, mm. anyway, great week for cinema. Yes, Marty. Hope you're listening. Um, so do please get out there and enjoy it. No, just on a, a sort of personal podcast note, we should say that we're actually bidding a fond farewell this week to our producer, Jane, who's been with us over the last year. She's moving on to pastures greener and hopefully a lot less chaotic <laughs> than we are and considerably more professional. I would never voluntarily inflict us on anyone. I just think it's just <laughs> cruel and unusual punishment. Yes, it is. Uh, but Jane Long, it's been absolutely a pleasure having you. You'll find her work on other great podcasts like Girls on Film. So yes, other more professional and polished productions <laughs> and she will be missed here. So thank you very much. And that is it then for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we will hopefully have Chris back from his lurgy, assuming he hasn't died of man flu. And we'll also be joined by some people from Frozen 2. Which people in particular? Did they want to build a snowman, Helen? That's the question. (laughs) Well, it would be going into the unknown to (laughs) say who. For the first time in forever, we have frozen people on the podcast. Um, But no, I believe it is Jonathan Groff and Josh Gad. So they should be absolutely... Now, do you think he'll be in sort of like uh, um, happy-go-lucky Christoph mode? Or do you think he'll be in really, really serious Mindhunter mode? I think he'll be... Or or a really terrifying blend of the two. Or completely flamboyant King George III mode. (laughs) Or nerdy Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors, which he's currently starring in mode. Well, I just remember he when I went to D23, he did, uh, they did one of the ensemble Frozen 2 songs on stage. I was like, that is Holden from Mindhunter. I've literally just watched him talking to Charles Manson on Netflix and this is freaking me the fuck out. Well, let's find out by tuning in next week to the Empire Podcast. Until then, it's goodbye from Amon. Peace. 
Goodbye from James. McClunky. And uh, (laughs) while I've got you here, do not forget to download the Pilot TV podcast where this week we will be reviewing some TV shows. But more importantly, I am making Terry watch an episode of Farscape. No. Yes. Why? Well, actually, this is the second we made her watch one and she didn't like it. And so I'm refusing to admit defeat, so I'm making her watch another one. Well, this can only go well for you. (laughs) This is, it's going to be entertaining. Okay. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to pitch the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the idea that every single film to be nominated for an Oscar should contain at least five minutes worth of John Berenthal reaction shots. I think it's a no-brainer, so we'll find out. Thanks very much. (laughs) Bye-bye. 